I'm so glad today to have with us Pastor Vladimir Nestoruk from Kiev, Ukraine. We're so glad, Vladimir, that you're with us here today. You're a pastor over there in Kiev. In fact, you're pastoring one of the churches that by the grace of God we were able to, to raise up during that great Kiev campaign. Would you tell me, Vladimir, because you come from a land where virtually everybody has had a communist background, atheistic background, how long have you been a Christian and how did you become a Christian? I was brought up in an Adventist home, but uh, I had my conversion experience when I was 17. Reading Bible for the first time for myself and getting ready for the army, which was obligatory for any young man in the Soviet Union era. How difficult was it back in those days for a Christian to serve in the Soviet army? Uh, two basic beliefs of every Adventist were challenged in Soviet army. Uh, one was the Sabbath, is Sabbath issue. Everyone was forced by the government, by commanders, to work hard on the Sabbath, and young Adventist men stood for their faith. And it was a privilege. And another issue was the food, because they would feed you uh, all kinds of stuff there, and you have no choice. <laughs> When you joined the Soviet Army, what was your um, initial experience? Here you are, you're an Adventist Christian, you believe in the Sabbath, you believe in eating certain types of foods and not eating other types of foods. How did you fit into the, the Soviet Communist Army? Well, I served in the years of Gorbachev, which was already warming up a little bit. But the lieutenant that was in charge of my unit was... Uh, brought up as a strong atheist and he had quite a hatred towards believers. So he was trying to make it as hard as possible uh, to the Christians. I was uh, the only Adventist in the unit and one guy was a Baptist and he was threatening with all kinds of threats. As the time of disposal of my surgeon's school was coming up, he was threatening to send me to a polar area to fight uh, white bears and, <laughs> and uh, that was his enjoyment. He was finding his joy in threatening Christians. So here you are, you're a long way from home. You're at the mercy of a communist officer. And this would fill the hearts of most young men with fear. You see, in this part of the world, none of us have to face those challenges because we live in a land that gives people certain privileges, even if they don't believe exactly as the government teaches on certain things. We have certain privileges. What happened to you with this man who was determined to break your faith? Well, he was determined to break my faith, but um, God was in charge. I was doing a lot of praying and studying the Bible before I went to army. And uh, there was another man who has chosen me to go to work in Kremlin. And uh, as I entered the Kremlin and was assigned to a certain work, guess how long I stayed there? Only for three days. As soon as the guy who took me to Kremlin realized that I'm a believer, uh, 
uh, he said, well, let's take care of this. Uh, do you really believe? He said, write an application to become a Lenin's organization member and we will take care of this. So you will stay here on this wonderful job. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. that. Um, he came, he said, okay, have a night's rest, have a good sleep, and tomorrow make your decision wise, you know. And uh, he came to me next day and he said, did you make your decision? I said, yes, I made it long ago. Oh, he said, okay, don't worry, I will write it for you. You don't have to sign it even. I will do it all for you. And I said, no. And he said, okay, just put a Lenin spin on your uniform that they would know that you changed your mind. What was this Lenin's pin? It was a sign that you become a Lenin's youth organization member and you're a strong atheist. You are proclaiming atheist and you don't believe in God. And that was kind of a sign, you know, a little red flag and Lenin on top of it. But uh, three days later, I was taken out of Kremlin as a worse criminal because I didn't make the decision. And I brought back to the unit where I served sent to a KGB school where they were building KGB school in Moscow in cold winter and was threatened to be sent in Siberia. But God took care of me and through this commander that didn't make me a youth Lenin organization member, but God sent me to a Crimea, the Black Sea, the resort area to build a Gorbis dacha in Crimea, which was quite enjoyable. And uh, I could visit church every Sabbath. So God turned the events over. He still honors your faith. So you were taken from the KGB building in Moscow. Right. And put on a train. Right. And when you got on the train, I, I guess, did you know where you were going? No. Before I got to the train station, I had no idea. Because this uh, officer that was taken wouldn't tell. But when I realized what happened, oh, what a joy and what a blessing to know that we serve a living God who is still honoring faith. So you went down to, down to the Crimea. And that's where Mr. Gorbachev had his dacha. Right. Uh, that's where I was for another 18 months uh, working there as a uh, surgeon, taking soldiers to the place of their work and bringing them back. And this is a tremendous uh, experience I had, which gave me a good start in my Christian walk. So you stayed there for 18 months. Yeah. And you were allowed free to go Sabbath. to church. Free Sabbath, yeah. God provided even that. That was a bonus for Soviet Union era. Yeah. It certainly was a miracle, wasn't it? It was a real miracle which uh, reestablished my faith. Um, it was one of the my first experiences with the Lord. If you don't give God a chance, you don't get it, those experiences. So I thought, I thought, well, I want to see God's hand in work. Tell me this. You're working today in the great city of Kiev, the capital of, of Ukraine. I've alluded a few moments ago to what you do. Vladimir, uh, tell us a little bit about your church. I'm pastoring the church downtown Kiev. It's a central church, and it's a big church. It has 750 members. And I have a privilege of uh, having my church members 
very active and enthused about evangelism because most of those members were baptized in Carter Report meetings in 1995. And those are the best active church members that I have involved in evangelism. Just months ago, we finished uh, another evangelistic meetings and had a baptism on October the 5th. And God gave us precious, precious souls for the kingdom. And then, of course, you were with us in uh, Odessa uh, for the campaign there. And uh, you're over here for a little while, and then you're going to go back. And uh, Vladimir, we're glad that you're with us. We thank God for you. We thank you for your courage in standing for Christ and for standing for the Holy Seventh-day Sabbath. Praise the Lord. Mm. It's my privilege to be with you. And I enjoy watching uh, Carter Report on 3ABM channel in my apartment in Kiev. I love you and I enjoy your church and your ministry. God bless you, Vladimir. You're welcome. God bless you. God bless you. We welcome you today. I want you to take out your Bibles and hold them up, please. Hold them up. And I want you to repeat this after me. This is my Bible. This is God's Word. God has a message for me today. His message will give me everlasting life and make me a better person. I now open my heart to receive God's Word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Now, this message today is prepared for every person, of course. This is a telecast that is now seen around the world. But when I prepared this message this week, I had in mind especially my Muslim brothers and sisters in the lands of the Middle East. Now, we get lots of letters from the Middle East. We get letters today from from Saudi Arabia and from Iran and Syria and Jordan and Iraq. And today when I was thinking about this message, I thought I want to talk somehow to my Muslim brothers and sisters whom I love. And today this message is going to be a challenge for me to present and maybe it's going to be a challenge for you to listen to but I want you to listen to it. I have here today a book that I would recommend to every person, every single person. Now let me take my glasses and I'm going to read you from this book. Let me hold it up. It's called The New Thought Police. Every person ought to read this because this is describing the situation, not in the Middle East, but it's describing the situation in this great land of freedom and democracy, the United States of America. And this book, entitled The New Thought Police, talks about the assault on free speech and free minds. Let me say this to every person today who is watching a telecast. We who have been born in freedom love freedom. 
And freedom is not freedom unless you're allowed to express your opinions. Can somebody say amen to that? And in this land of the United States of America, if you understand freedom, you have the freedom to disagree with the government. Is that true? Can you say amen to that? Somebody says, well, you, you, well, you can't be an American and disagree with your government. Hey, the only people who used to talk like that were communists. We believe in freedom of speech and freedom to disagree with the government and freedom to disagree with the church when the church is wrong. This is what freedom is all about. And uh, the reason the president gives for invading Iraq is because, in his viewpoint, it was to bring freedom to people who did not have freedom of speech or freedom of religion as we understand it today. And freedom is not freedom unless it's freedom for minorities. Oh, you say, but you know, we don't want little groups of people disagreeing with us. Well, my friend, uh, you don't understand what freedom's all about. Let me read to you from this book. I recommend it to every American, especially to read this book, The New Thought Police, because here we're not as free as we think we are. Our freedom to speak our minds is under attack. Like the thought police of George Orwell's 1984, powerful special interest groups are mounting a withering assault on our rights in the name of social equality. Liberty has been turned on its ear as the rights of the few restrict the freedoms of everyone. From rigid speech codes on college campuses to the knee-jerk use of labels such as racist, sexist, homophobe, in an attempt to socially ostracize people with opposing viewpoints. Speaking one's mind today has become increasingly dangerous. We're not as free as we like to think we are. Because you better be careful in this great land of the United States of America about expressing your opinion on certain subjects. In fact, on the campuses of most of the great universities, there are certain subjects that are taboo. And if you talk about them, you'll be kicked off the campus. I'm not talking about Russia. I'm talking about America. Threats to silence radio and television hosts, book and newspaper burnings, expulsions of students for utterances offensive to select groups. All are common practices in a long line of attacks on people whose opinions do not conform. Did you know this, my beloved American brothers and sisters, that America was founded by nonconformists. In most countries of the world, people are conformists. Hey, if the government says it, yeah, 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 that's right, sure. If the church says it, yes, 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 yes. 
conformists are going to get the mark of the beast. Did you, did you know that? Revelation 13 is a chapter on religious conformity. I stand before you today as a religious nonconformist. What about you? I'm asking you the question. Jesus was a religious nonconformist. You ought to read the book, The New Thought Police, because you're not as free, at least some of you are not as free as you thought you were. The purpose of this talk is to compare the great religions of the world. Did you know that this topic is not allowed in many churches? It is not allowed in the government. It is not allowed wherever there is political correctness. Political correctness is this. You can speak on those things that do not cause offense to anybody. I'll tell you something. That's what the communists did. That's what the fascists did. That's what the Nazis did. That's what they tried to do in Australia some time back. Thank God the law was repealed. They said preachers were free to preach on any subject as long as they didn't speak on subjects that might offend anybody. <laughs> well, goodness me, that rule out every one of my sermons. <laughs> so I had to be opposed to that. But that law was done away with because it was non-constitutional. Political correctness makes cowards of people who'd like to think that they are free. Today we're going to talk about Islam. I want to say to my Muslim brothers and sisters, this is not an attack upon you. I hope that you will have the courage to look at the truth. Jesus said... You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Most people today are scared to death about looking at the truth. And so we have become a race of reeds. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Jesus said of John the Baptist, a reed shaken by the wind. We have become largely a race of reeds. We need to have the courage to examine the truth. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And no man is free if he doesn't believe the truth. If a man is enslaved to ideas that are despotic and that close the mind, he may shout, God bless America, and say, I believe in the flag, but he is a slave. No man is free unless he believes the truth. Therefore we say, let freedom ring. And that is why I have so much respect for the founding fathers 
of the United States of America. Nonconformists, every one of them. Wimps, none of them. Courageous, every one of them. Politically correct, <laughs> they would have laughed and scorned uh, this puny concept. So I say to my Muslim friends and my other friends, whom I hope I still have, please consider the evidence. My topic today is the incomparable Christ. Who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? Well, Jesus was born of a Jewish girl. Jesus was a Jew through and through. When he was a little boy, an attempt was made on his life when he was a baby by King Herod. His parents took him down to the land of Egypt. Egypt saved his life. Egypt saved the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should respect Mother Egypt. Oh, I love Egypt and the people of Egypt. This happened in 4 B.C., 5 B.C., 6 or 7 B.C., we're not quite sure. Then after the death of Herod, his parents took him back to the land of Israel. And because there was another king who was as bad as Herod, his parents took him up there to Galilee of the Gentiles to a country, in the, to a town in the hills by the name of Nazareth. His foster father was a Jewish gentleman by the name of Joseph. And he taught Jesus to be a carpenter, which is an honorable profession. He belonged to a large family. There was mom and dad, and the Bible says he had brothers and sisters. When he was around 30 years of age, he heard the call and went down to the River Jordan and met there John the Baptist who was baptizing. And there he was baptized and commenced preaching with the words, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. His ministry did not last a long time, around three and a half years, Three and a half years of preaching, teaching, and healing. He aroused the fierce anger of the Jewish authorities because Jesus was not politically correct. He was the supreme religious nonconformist. And somebody has said, would he recognize the church today? Because of his preaching, the truth, he was handed by the Jewish leaders over to the Roman authorities. And the Romans were the occupying power and the Jews hated them, but they hated Jesus more. So he was handed over to the Romans and the Romans tortured him and crucified him and he suffered the most agonizing death that a man can endure. And he died on the cross. He was cold and limp. He was dead. But the following Sunday, Jesus was raised from the dead. And today 
he is still alive. And so today, we worship a living Jesus. Jesus is alive and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. There is overwhelming evidence that this Jesus, this Jewish carpenter, this relatively young man was the Messiah of the Jews and of the world. Let me give you some evidence. I'm turning here in the scriptures to Isaiah 53. And my Muslim friends believe in the Old Testament. They believe in the prophets of the Old Testament. They believe in Abraham and Moses and they recognize Jesus as a great prophet. But I want you to notice Isaiah 53, verse 3 that describes the work of the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and who, who can speak of his descendants for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. These words by the Jewish prophet are fulfilled in only one person, and that's Jesus. And today there are a multitude of God-fearing Jews who are turning to Jesus because of the evidence and because they're God-fearing. These verses, you will notice, my dear friends, these verses describe his Rejection, his piercing because of the nails, his bearing our sins, his oppression at the hands of the church and the state, his silence, his grave with the wicked, with the two thieves, and with the rich in his death, Joseph of Arimathea. One cannot read these inspired words and study the history of Jesus and not recognize that he alone is the Messiah. 
But if you turn now to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, it, it tells us that he is more than the Messiah, more than a man. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. These verses, my beloved Muslim friends, must be faced honestly. The little baby Jesus was called the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Therefore, it is taught in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And the Quran quotes from the Bible. Therefore, my Muslim friends, you say that you believe the prophets, but the prophets say that Jesus was the son of the Most High God. And he is called the everlasting God. The overwhelming evidence is that Jesus is more than a carpenter which you acknowledge, more than a prophet that you acknowledge that he is the Son of God. I want you to notice his own words. If we come over here to John chapter 8 and verse 48 and onwards, and I would recommend to every Muslim who is watching this program to please get a Bible. If you want a Bible, write to me, John Carter, Post Office Box 1900, Thousand Oaks, California, 91358, and I will send to any Muslim who wants a Bible, I will send you a Bible. Now notice verse 48 of John chapter 8. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I want you to know here that the Jews were fighting Jesus. I'm not possessed, at least the Jewish leaders. I should say that, the Jewish leaders, not the average Jewish person, but the Jewish hierarchy. I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Did you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim is your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And yet you've seen Abraham. I tell you the truth. 
Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. The Bible says, immediately picked up stones to kill him because he was claiming to be God. Now I say to my Muslim friends, you can't say he is a prophet. A prophet does not blaspheme the name of Allah. But this man, who is more than a prophet, says, before Abraham was, I am. My Muslim friends believe in Moses. We have much in common. We believe in the one God. And the Bible tells the story that Moses went out one day to the mountain. And there was a flaming bush. And he stepped aside to see this remarkable sight and a voice said to him, Moses, Moses. He said, who are you? The voice said, take the shoes from off your feet for the place where on, on which you stand is holy ground. Then this man, Moses, has a conversation with the one true God who my Muslim friends call Allah. And we do not quarrel with that. We believe in one true God. We do not believe in many gods. We believe in one true God. And then Moses says to him, if you want me to go to the elders of Israel, they're not going to accept me because they'd love to argue. They're going to say, what is his name? And the one true God said, go tell them my name. I am that I am. Tell them, I am has sent you to them. When Jesus was having his controversy with the Jewish leaders, he said, before Abraham was, way back there, he didn't say, I was. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus Christ claimed to be the self-existent God. And that is why in a holy scripture, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So who is this Jesus? Ah, my friend. He takes upon himself the name of the self-existent God. Listen, he said, I am the way, I am the way, the truth and the life. He didn't say, I will show you the way. He didn't say, I will just preach the truth to you. I will not just give you life or show you where you can get life. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Then he said, no man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus said, you cannot be saved unless you come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
say, well, this is not politically correct. This is dogmatism. Yes, it is. But it is the truth. Jesus said these words, I am the bread of life. Are you hungry? He can fill you. He said, I am the light of the world. The light of the world is the sun. He said, I am the sun. I am the sun of the world. I am the living water, he said to the woman. If you drink of me, you will never, never be thirsty. Are you thirsty? Do you want something better? Christ is better. He said, I am the gate for the sheep. He said, by me, the sheep come in and out and are saved. You can't go through any other man, not through Moses, not through the prophets. He said, I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And I wish to say to every person today, Jesus stands like a mighty mountain peak above the dismal swamps of human philosophy. He is the Son of God, the incomparable Christ. May I remind you of his life and teachings? He healed the sick. No disease could withstand the touch of his blessed hand. The hand that flung the worlds in space was reached out and touched the sick. He raised the dead. Death could not remain in his presence. But like the morning mists before the burning sun fled away. He redeemed the outcasts of society. Remember the woman caught by the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, in the act of adultery? How did they do it? Maybe they had inside information. And Jesus said to her, where are your accusers? After they fled away like dingoes with their tails between their legs. He said, where are your accusers? She said, there are none, Lord. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He redeemed the dregs of society. While the Pharisees were great in picking up stones to stone people, Jesus picked up people. He transformed civilization. He broke the bonds of slavery because the slave became a brother. He restored women. Let me talk to the women here. When you read through the Bible, especially the New Testament, you also get the culture of those days. The Bible is written in the, in the times in which it is written, obviously. It shares a common culture. And so the Bible says... There were 5,000 there when Jesus preached. Some translations say 
not counting the women and the children. Because really, you know, before Jesus came, they didn't count that much. It was a man's world. And women were dirt beneath their feet. But Jesus placed Eve back beside Adam as an equal. There are some today who say, and I've heard it said by those today, even in the church, woman will never be equal to man. Well, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. You've heard it. I'm glad you've heard it, my brother. Because now I'm going to be kind to you because you just heard it. But let me tell you something. That's not what Jesus said. And in the New Testament, even though men come in for a flailing because of their sins, no woman ever is criticized concerning her relationship to Jesus. They supported him. They loved him. They were there at the cross when all the disciples had fled. And they were first at the tomb. And there are some things he never did. Listen to this, my Muslim friends. He never led an army. He never killed a single human being. He never persecuted anyone who disagreed with him. You say, but the Christians held the Crusades. Uh, wait a moment, they weren't Christians. They were members of a vast anti-Christian system masquerading as Christians. The religion of Jesus never persecuted a single soul. If you belong to a church that persecutes people, your church is the Antichrist. Not the religion of Jesus. So he never persecuted anyone who disagreed with him. And he never kept a harem. Dare we face the facts? I say to my beloved friends of other religions, will we be prepared to face the facts? Will we continue to be controlled by the thought police of our governments or our religions? Or shall we face the facts, even though they be unpalatable to our theological throats? Muhammad, after the death of his first wife, and he was happily married to this woman, but after the death of his first wife, he had visions ordering him to write the Quran. And after his flight from Mecca, history tells us he became a robber, a polygamist, and a violent man who engaged in 40 armed conflicts and whose sword was stained with the blood of thousands of men, women, and children. Compare him to the Christ of the Bible. He was the one who originated the idea of the jihad against the Jews and against all who would not convert to the faith. 
You say, but these things are cruel of you to say. I say, let history speak and be the judge. I wish to refer to the treatment of women. One of the worst sins against women has been this terrible mutilation of young girls. It is not necessary for me to speak of this abominable rite that is practiced today by millions in Africa and other parts of the world who believe in Islam. One word from Muhammad back there would have stopped it. After the death of his first wife, he married again a six-year-old girl and consummated the marriage when she was nine years old. After that, he took another nine wives as well as numerous concubines and all the slaves that he wanted from the battles. Jesus never spilt a drop of blood no woman should ever criticize Jesus. If it were not for Jesus, you would still be dirt under the feet of men, as you are in other parts of the world, beside those great countries that believe the Bible. Those who criticize the Bible do not know how well off they are to have the Bible. And if you were to take the Christian church out of America and Canada and Australia and New Zealand and other parts of the world, uh, women would go back to the dark ages where they are today in the Muslim countries. No Muslim country today, I say to my Muslim friends, allows freedom of speech or freedom of religion. You say, well, how on earth would you know? Well, I've been there probably more than most people. I am a friend of the Muslim people. But I know this, that there are no Christian churches today in Saudi Arabia. And in no Muslim country is it allowed for an evangelist like John Carter to go and publicly evangelize. It's not allowed. You'll be killed. That is why I defend the matchless Christ. No Muslim country allows freedom of speech or freedom of religion. I appeal to my Muslim friends, the vast majority of whom seek peace and goodwill. I have Muslim friends, the man who laid this carpet is a fine Muslim brother. The majority of Muslims want peace. Unfortunately, millions of them want terror because of the teachings of Muhammad. I want to say to my Muslim friends who are watching this telecast, believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus. 
He is the Messiah. He is the answer to all of your questions. Let me mention some other world religions that are catching on here in the United States because of the vacuum of spirituality. Hinduism, which is based, of course, upon polytheism and pantheism. There are 330 million Hindu gods. 330 million? They believe in reincarnation. Half the Hollywood film stars believe it too. But of course, they would believe anything. <laughs> reincarnation and karma. Karma teaches you get what you deserve. And so you are reincarnated according to your works in your previous life. And so if a person is born an untouchable, you should show no sympathy to him because he deserves it. You say, but you're talking history. These things don't happen today in India. Are you kidding? The National Geographic just a few months ago put out an article on the untouchables in India. Their poverty, their persecution, their destitution. It is a land of sorrows and a land of darkness that needs the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Then there is suti. You know about suti? That is the burning of young widows. When the husband dies, the girl is tied to the burning coffin. She's burned also. Buddhism. Ah, it is much better than Hinduism because it is reformed Hinduism. But it still believes in karma. They had many years ago a man called Gautama. He became the Buddha, which means the enlightened one. And he taught, listen to this, all suffering comes from desire. Therefore, if you can get rid of desire, you'll get rid of suffering. And he worked out the eightfold path of right thought and action and deed. And this will lead at last, if you work very hard, to nirvana. You know what nirvana is in Buddhism? It is nothingness. It is oblivion. Freedom from pain. It is atheism. No hope. No forgiveness. No everlasting life. But until you attain to this, you go on the circle that goes on, maybe for millions of years. And then after you've gone through the eightfold path, you have no desire left. No desire. No desire. And then you have reached the Buddhist paradise, extinction. And people in America are accepting it. Some say, by the millions. My friend, there is no comparison between the Lord Jesus and Buddha, Hinduism, and Muhammad. 
He stands like a great mountain peak above the dismal swamps of human philosophies. Listen to this wonderful statement. Lincoln's the incomparable Christ. This is only a bit of it. More than 1900 years ago, there was a man born contrary to the laws of life. This man lived in poverty and was reared in obscurity. He did not travel extensively. Only once did he cross the boundary of the country in which he lived. That was during his exile in childhood. His life's work was confined to a little place much less in size than Tasmania. He possessed neither wealth nor influence. His relatives were inconspicuous, uninfluential, and had neither training nor education. In infancy, he startled a king. In childhood, he puzzled the doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature, walked upon billows as if on pavements, and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitude with that medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of the country could not hold the books that have been written about him. He never wrote a song, and yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters combined. He never practiced medicine, yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors far and near. The names of the past proud statesmen of Greece and Rome have come and gone. The names of past scientists, philosophers, and theologians have come and gone. But the name of this man abounds more and more. Though time has spread 1,900 years between the people of this generation and the scene of his crucifixion, yet he still lives. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him. And the grave could not hold him. He stands forth upon the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory, proclaimed of God, acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, and feared by devils as the living personal Christ. This man, as you know, was Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. My dearly beloved, I present to you the incomparable Christ. Amen. Amen and amen.